I wonder how many of you have ever taken a philosophy course? Anybody? All right. How many of you enjoyed it? <laughs> how many of you didn't enjoy it? All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, maybe more importantly for our purposes, I wonder if any of you took, you know, formally took a philosophy course in middle school or high school. Is that the case for anybody? Okay, so I see just a hand or two. How about elementary school? All right, kindergarten? All right, all right. If you're online, you're welcome to share your experience in the chat. I'll, I'll be able to see that later. I'm increasingly convinced as a society that we wait far too late to give people a formal opportunity to engage with those really big questions, the questions of life and the universe and everything, and to wrestle with the different ways that various peoples and groups have responded to those big questions over time, right? We don't have to just figure it all out ourselves. We can engage with these different folks who have tried to sort it. The earliest opportunity most people have to engage in a philosophy class is in college, and of course not everyone has a chance to go to college, wants to go to college, wants to take a philosophy class if they are in college, uh, etc. But the big questions that are at the heart of the philosophic tradition, they tend to naturally occur in most human beings at a very young age. How many of you have had a child that at some early point went through a question phase, especially relentlessly asking the question, why? All right, all right. Uh, how many of you were that kid? I was. <laughs> so, it's time for bed. Why? <laughs> because getting rest is important. Why? Because you're tired and cranky the next day when you don't get enough sleep. Why? Because your body needs sleep to be refreshed. Why? <laughs> right? I could go on. We all, we all know how this ends, right? Because I told you so, all right? Uh, yeah. Sometimes kids do weaponize that question, why, to try to get their way out of boredom, you know, just to be annoying. But that relentless, that relentless why, 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 it, it does also often emerge out of an authentic and natural curiosity to understand this mysterious and strange reality that we all find ourselves in that none of us asked to be here or to create. We humans often aren't satisfied with mere data and facts and information. We want meaning. We want to know why. Too often kids stop asking why because they realize their questions are often not welcome. On the other end of the spectrum, I'm, I'm not saying that we adults are supposed to have all the answers to all those questions. Well, now we live in the age of Wikipedia, so you can just look it up, kid. Get, go on YouTube with uh, appropriate age settings, right? Uh, you know, nobody knows all the answers, but the tradition of philosophy, much like what we offer here at UUCF, is often, it's much less about finding one definitive answer for all people and times and places. It's more a safe space for exploring and living into the questions together. In 1902, the Austrian poet Rilke put it this way in a, a letter to his 19-year-old protege. He said, I want to beg you, I want to beg you as much as you can to try to be patient with all that is unresolved in your heart. If you've ever been a young person, maybe still today, has some things that are unresolved in your heart, be patient with that and try to love the questions themselves. 
Love the questions themselves. Love them like locked rooms. Love them like books that are written in a very foreign tongue that you don't know how to read yet. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them yet. And the point is to live everything. So live the questions now, Rilke said, and perhaps you will then gradually, maybe even without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. If you want to read the full context, all 10 of Rilke's missives to his protege are published in a powerful modern classic titled Letters to a Young Poet. Uh, But this sermon was actually inspired by a different, also delightful and accessible and practical book titled Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. Uh, It's by Scott Hershevitz. He's a professor of law and philosophy at the University of Michigan and the father of two children. Let's zoom in on that cartoon. One kid asked, is that title about us, nasty, brutish, and short? The other kid responds, I think so. My uh, fellow philosophy nerds will recognize that title as an allusion to an influential book in the history of political philosophy titled The Leviathan, written by the 17th century philosopher, uh, English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. The most famous line from that book speculates that life for humans prior to society was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Hobbes was, shall we say, a pessimist. And many people, including me, uh, disagree with his conception of how things used to be. He's a little bit extreme. That being said, you know, life with kids can sometimes be a little bit like what Hobbes called the state of nature before society. Hershevitz says our kids can be nasty, brutish, and short. But they are also cute and kind. And they're two of the finest philosophers that I know, is what he says about his two sons. He says, they're also among the funniest and the most fun, too. He wrote this book to support them in staying that way. His hopes for his children is that what happens to many of us, getting discouraged from living the questions, getting discouraged from our natural inclination to philosophy, that it won't happen to them. As with Rilke's letter to his young protege, he wants his kids, he wants all of us to keep living into those big questions of life, the universe, and everything. Let me give you a few examples from my own life. If you've been around here for a while, you may have heard me tell a story or two over the years, but I want to connect them in a way I maybe haven't previously for all of you. Uh, As I do this, it's probably equally important or more important, don't just listen to my story. Think about what are the times that you had experiences like this or either being discouraged or encouraged and kind of living the questions and asking the questions and how you either have helped encourage or discourage others from living the questions. This first story exposes what is likely no big surprise that I've been a big nerd for a long time. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that, Uh, but in middle school, my parents were delayed one day picking me up after a youth group from my childhood congregation, uh, which was a Southern Baptist church. So I decided to spend that time um, exploring the church library, right? Nerd alert. So uh, while perusing the shelves, one book stood out to me. Its title was something like The Catholic Bible with the Apocrypha. And I probably was like apocrypha or whatever, like I didn't know how to pronounce it. And I opened to the table of contents and I saw Tobit. 
and Judith and Bell and the Dragon and the 151st Psalm. And I was like, no one told me there was more than one Bible. Isn't the Bible the Bible? Now, as many of you know, this particular rabbit hole goes a whole lot deeper if you start getting into the non-canonical books and all of that, but this was more than enough to start the questions flying in my adolescent brain. So when I asked my youth group leader about this discovery, he looked a little bit startled, and he said, well, you know, some groups have different sets of books of the Bible, and then he quickly walked away. Around that time, I also remember a Sunday school lesson, and we were reading a passage from the biblical book of 1 Samuel 16. Some of you may remember this, and it says, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and then King Saul starts throwing spears at David, and later became King David. Uh, It's, again, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 19, if you want to look it up later. So I raised my hand and asked, what does it mean that an evil spirit from God entered Saul? My, you know, is God a source of evil? My Sunday school teacher got that same kind of deer in the headlights look that my youth group uh, leader had gotten earlier when I'd asked about those pesky extra books in the Bible. And he said, you know, that's not one of the official questions here in the curriculum. We're going <laughs> to, we're going we're gonna to go back to that. Now, I was a pretty obedient kid, uh, so I didn't really press it. Uh, I didn't press them further in either of those cases, but those are two among many experiences in which, looking back, I was really discouraged from living the questions, and I think if my life had gone differently, I could have just never pursued those questions. They would have remained uh, inchoate. Uh, In contrast, here's a very different story that encouraged me to embark, you know, more boldly on the adventures of philosophy. In the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, I was a junior counselor. Any, any camp counselors out there? Uh, all right. Uh, and I was there for seven weeks at a summer camp, and that, uh, the first week there was a staff Bible study, and it was on the topic of theodicy. And I remember thinking, theoda what? Uh, compare the more familiar words. So theology, theos, log, logos, that's words about God. Theodicy is like that. Theos dice, which means justice. How do you reconcile justice with our understanding of God? The the framework of theodicy typically turns on three points. It's sometimes called, instead of a dilemma, a trilemma. So those three points are, one, if God is indeed all-knowing, maybe God is, isn't, maybe God is, but that's typically something that's postulated. If God's all-knowing, God knows evil exists. If God is all-loving, God should want to do something about evil. If God is all-powerful, then God could do something about evil. So why does evil exist? Or maybe God doesn't exist, right? That's the flip side of it. The gist of theodicy is the existence of evil is maybe the greatest challenge to consider that, again, either maybe God doesn't exist and the universe just evolved this way to be a a way that we experience as good and bad and and these arbitrary human categories from our perspective. Or perhaps God does exist, but is the source of evil since God is the source of everything. So maybe God is more monstrous than is sometimes admitted to. There's a lot more to say about all the various theodicies that have been developed over time to respond to the problem of evil, but that is another sermon for another day, and I cannot uh, get into all that right now. So returning to our story, in that very surprising uh, Bible study on theodicy, I mostly listened. But inside, my head was spinning. Wait, there's a whole field of study called theodicy? That where people spend their whole lives wrestling with this problem of how does evil exist if God also exists? 
How, you know, I've been to church multiple times every week. How come nobody told me this before? Now, afterward, I went up to the camp director, Dan, who had led that uh, Bible study, and I, I said, with all sincerity, that was by far the most interesting Bible study I've ever been to. And growing up Southern Baptist, I've been to a lot of Bible studies, right, in my 17 years so far on this planet. You know, how come some that no one told me all this before? He said, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I find questions like this interesting as well. And he invited me to come upstairs to his office and he showed me his bookshelf. And he said, if you're interested in learning more, you can borrow any book that you'd like one at a time. And when you're done, just return it and you can get another one if you'd like. So that summer in my free time and staying up often late into the night, I read books like Tony Campolo's 20 Hot Potatoes, Christians Are Afraid to Touch, (laughs) featuring questions like, what about women preachers? Can a Christian own a BMW? When is it okay to tell a doctor to pull the plug? Can Christians kill in war and still be Christians? I wouldn't recommend Campolo now, but in 19—I saw him speak one time. He's, he's really amazing if you're an evangelical Christian. I remember him saying, not only do I believe that the Bible is real, I believe the leather that it's bound with is real. You know, like he's, he's quite a character. Uh, but anyway, I wouldn't recommend him now, but in 1995, as a fairly sheltered Southern Baptist from South Carolina, that book really hit me like a bolt of lightning. I also read the theological ethicist Stanley Hauerwas's book, After Christendom. So, you know, after Christianity is no longer the established way. After Christendom. How the church is to behave if freedom, justice, and a Christian nation are bad ideas. I read the contemporary classic Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I read uh, environmental activist uh, Wendell Berry's book, Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community. Uh, there's a wonderful introduction, uh, passage for the introduction to this book. It's definitely the best title that Barry ever came up with. Uh, that passage says, if you have bought this book, dear reader, I thank you for your money. If you have borrowed it, I honor your, your frugality. If you have stolen it because it had sex in the title, may it add to your confusion. So is it problematic that all those books I just named were written by white men? Yes, yes it is. But reading those books at that time in my life set the groundwork to be ready to wrestle with questions by more diverse and multicultural authors. Here's another important part of that story. Where had Dan, that camp director who had let me borrow all those books, where did he learn all of that? Where did all those books come from? Well, it turns out he was a graduate of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's the same seminary that my youth minister had been to, the same seminary that my minister had been to. Honestly, a great school prior to the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. That same, uh, it, it turns out they all knew the same stuff as Dan, but they responded to it differently and, and, and whether, how they did or didn't let folks like me know about it. They were proximate to them. I'm going to be really honest here. They were, in my judgment, too cowardly to include in their preaching and teaching the big questions that had probably sent them to seminary in the first place. Now, don't get me wrong, I have many good things to say about the staff of my childhood congregation as well, but there was real harm done by their collective failure to be honest about the big questions of life, the universe, and everything, and their silence contributed to a culture of secrecy and a culture of shame. 
For those who have been following the news, that culture also contributed to recent uh, revelations about decades of cover-up around sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. There are some stories I know well of deep harm experienced by people that I love deeply from my childhood and adolescence. Those are not my stories to fully share. Uh, You can Google Southern Baptist sexual abuse cover-up scandal if you would like to read more about this yourself. And for a second, let's just take a breath. This is heavy, I realize. Important name the heavy pieces, but I also don't want us to miss the good things that can happen when we're willing to ask those big, exciting questions that can lead us on adventures in philosophy. There's a famous scene from the film Matrix in which the protagonist, uh, Neo, is offered a choice between taking the red pill or the blue pill. Uh, Morpheus, the leader of the rebellion, says, you know, you can take the blue pill and the story ends, and you wake up in your bed, and you believe whatever you want to believe, and you keep attending the same Southern Baptist congregation that you attended your whole life, and you just fit in, right? That, I added that part. Uh, you take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and you see just how deep the rabbit hole goes. Turns out it leads to places like this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but through whatever confluence of temperament and genetics and conditioning, I tend toward choosing the red pill. Give me the red pill, Morpheus. Like, I want to stay in Wonderland. I want to know how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's really related to that deep childhood impulse toward asking why, 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 why. I I really want to know. And I, just, I don't just want to know the how and the facts and the information and the mechanics. I really do want to know why. I want to know why it all really matters. And the search for meaning, the longing to know why, that's really the best of what philosophy has always been about. Philosophy is from the root words philia, meaning love, and sophia. If you ever known somebody named Sophia, their name means wisdom. Philosophy is simply about the love of wisdom, not just the love of knowledge and information, but truly what is wise, what really matters, and why. I entered college with the intention of being pre-med and becoming a doctor, which would have been one fine way. I was really serious about it. I don't have time to get into all of this. I took a class called Health Careers and it, as a senior in high school, so I left early. I did a, a one-month rotation. Uh, you know, I went through ob and saw babies being born you know, for a month and physical therapy for a month. I did a rotation through surgery and spent you know, a month watching it. I was real serious about becoming a doctor. Uh, when I was a senior in high school. Uh, but my freshman year at college, I took this year-long humanities sequence that kind of brought in different professors from the whole uh, humanities. And the periodic lectures related to religion and philosophy, they just woke up something inside of me, a passionate curiosity to know about this weird, strange reality in life, the universe and everything, that had been too often lulled to sleep by the context of my childhood and by the adults that were around me. I ended up doing something that I don't necessarily recommend for others, but it worked out for me. I declared a double major in religion and philosophy at the end of my freshman year, having never taken a religion or full class in religion or philosophy. It worked out. Uh, I don't anticipate that will be most people's paths. And to return to Hershevitz's books, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids, he says that even as a professional philosopher, he doesn't anticipate his kids will necessarily want to follow in his path, but he does want them to have a basic familiarity with philosophy. And he argues 
All of us should want that for all of us. Just a basic uh, familiarity with the art of thinking and how people have tried to think through these questions over time. In Hershevitz's words, the aim is just to raise a person who thinks clearly and carefully, to raise a person who cares what other people thinks and is open to thinking with them. That description of philosophy resonates so much with what we're about here in this big tent of Unitarian Universalism. We come together not to find the one true answer, you know, capital T, capital A for all people in times and places that actually is elusive, it it doesn't exist. Instead, we come together in all our diversity to discover what one another thinks and how we might all think more carefully and thoughtfully and clearly, and that together we might live into those big questions more wisely, more generously, more compassionately. Uh, If you were hoping for some kind of tools to do that better, Hershowitz recommends that five simple prompts will get you a very long way for yourself, with others, for young people, adults in your life. Just asking the question, what do you think about that? And then listening. Remember, philosophy isn't about knowing the answers. It's about asking the questions and seeing what comes up. And then asking, why do you think that? Right? That all-important question. Not just what do you think, but why do you think that? Really? Why do you think that? And here's another really good one. Can you think of reasons why, the re- why, why, why you think that might be wrong? Right? Flip it around. So much can be unlocked by that. And then you know, various things that come up. What do you mean by that? Just going a little bit deeper. And then you can get a long way by just what is blank? What is art? What is justice? What is fairness? You know, that, that can get you a long way. There's also some wonderful, wonderful resources at the back of his book for doing philosophy in general on various subjects, as well as especially for doing philosophy with kids. Let me give you one specific example. If you spent much time around kids or even just been a kid yourself, I suspect you've heard someone complain at some point, that's not fair, right? Here's how you can potentially transform that exhausting complaint into an adventure in philosophy. So I hear you saying that's not fair. What do you think fairness is? What is fairness? Whose job is it to make things fair? Do you ever benefit from unfairness? Ooh, this just got nasty, right? (laughs) Always remember, you don't have to have the answers in mind to ask questions. Just see where the conversation goes. Welcome to philosophy. It's about living the questions. And maybe some distant day, Without even noticing it, you may find you have lived into some answers, even if just for yourself. So if you feel like you have lost the spirit of philosophizing, you aren't a parent of young children at the moment, Melissa, I guarantee you our director of religious education would love to sign you up to volunteer with one of our religious education classes. And I'm not, I'm not just kidding. Uh, kids really, genuinely are alive to awe and wonder about the world that we sometimes lose on our journey to adulthood. Though I, I, recent, I think those James Webb Space Telescope photos, that, that's the most recent thing I've seen really lighting up adults too, right? Kids have that all the time. That's one reason I'm grateful to be part of this Unitarian Universalist, what we often call living tradition. It's the reason we kindle this chalice flame. Our living tradition is symbolized by a bright, burning, living flame. Now, sure, there's a risk of getting burned when you play with fire, right? It's simple, let's just keep it simple, let's just sweep everything under the rug. You start playing with fire, you might get burned, but there's also this tremendous warmth and fascination of gathering with community around an open flame. 
So I wish you all unexpected adventures in philosophy. And in the spirit of living the questions and being grateful for opportunities to ask those big questions about life, let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together in your teal hymnals, 1010. We give thanks. We're just going to sing it through twice using those same words uh, on the line. Uh, let me end with one final thing. Uh, there's, a, there's an old joke about what do you get if you cross a you, you, and a, an evangelist. You get someone who goes around knocking on doors for no particular reason. <laughs> it's funny, and, and I, in risking to, of telling you that joke, the risk is you'll remember the joke and not why it's actually not true. And the reason it's actually not true is that if we were to go around knocking on doors, we're, we, t- we tend to be a people of... Uh, at most persuasion, not coercion. But if we were to do that, it would be for very good reasons. It would be for reasons deeply related to our UU values of freedom and reason and pluralism and tolerance and interdependence and deeply related to wanting people to ask these questions of why. You know, looking back, just, I mean, just such a quick, I just want to do it, just such a quick hop, skip, and a jump. You go back to the 1500s when our tradition started Unitarianism, and you get uh, Ferenc David, who was fired as court philosopher uh, in the court of history's first Unitarian king. Uh, He was fired for innovations in theology, for helping found a living tradition, right, that doesn't just want to memorize stuff from the past, but wants to grow and learn. We talked about a few weeks ago how Emerson, you know, was he wasn't asked back to Harvard for decades because he dared to preach a sermon to the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School students to acquaint thyself at first hand with deity. Don't just believe stuff because these people tell you. Find out what you really think and feel. Remember, we often talk about the transcendentalists, but at that time it was called the transcendentalist revolt within Unitarianism, a tradition that, uh, that Emerson said has become corpse cold. You all have become corpse cold. You know, he was leading this revolt. Uh, the, uh, you know, right after that, you know, the people that thought the, the transcendentalists had not gone far enough, the humanists, the free religious association, you know, all of this was about people deeply seeking the freedom to say why. And then we could also talk about all those folks who were involved with the abolitionist movement, why are we enslaving human beings? The suffragist movement, why aren't women equal? LGBT, you know, our right, aside with love, you know, why can't gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual folks get married, right? Why? 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 I want to know, right? And your reasons are terrible, right? Right? With love, your reasons are terrible. So as we go into the rest of this day and into this next week, may you continue your journey with love. And it is love that often forces us to ask these questions, right? Love for one another and for having a freer, fuller life for all of us. Continue your journey with love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had at this time in place of hope, of love, of peace, or joy, whatever rekindling maybe within yourself of the, you know, inclinations into why and meaning and going on adventures in philosophy like Calvin and Hobbes. May that go with you into the world, right? May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. <laughs>